0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So last week, Paul Petit spoke from Acts 17, the first half, on Paul's mission to two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And at Thessalonica, the mob rejected the gospel and, and ran Paul and his companions out of town. And at Berea the people had a hearing for the word. And in fact, such a hearing that, that uh, Timothy and Titus stayed there because the people were so hungry to hear the word. And, and uh, from that text, Paul Poteet called us to be the kind of people who so treasure Christ and hope in him that we would share the gospel to people when they reject us and throw us out of town and when they receive it and not let the fear of negative consequences freeze us from gospeling other people. So that was last week. Today records the Apostle Paul's mission to the city of Athens. And my aim is that God might grant us a renewed passion for his glory, that we might engage all kinds of people with the gospel in Authentic and meaningful ways. I can say it again. My aim is that God might grant us a renewed passion for His glory, such that we might engage all kinds of different people with the gospel in meaningful and tangible ways. So let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this word and help us now as we open it up. Thank you for your faithfulness to Bethlehem through the years. Thank you for your faithfulness to each one of your people and continue the work that you've begun in us now even as we look into this text. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a simple outline. I very rarely do the, you know, the, the, the four parts with the you know, P's. It's four P's that I'm, I'm giving you. Uh, Paul's perception, Paul's passion, Paul's persuasion, and Paul's preaching. There's my outline. Number one, Paul's perception number two, Paul's passion, number three, Paul's persuasion, and number four, Paul's preaching. Let's get right into it. Paul's perception. Now, Paul, continuing on his missionary journey through Europe, arrived in Athens, having left Silas and Timothy behind uh, in the city of Berea, to finish up their, their ministry before joining him. And you know a little bit, I, I assume, about Athens, Greece, the city of the great philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. It's a city rich in literature and art and culture, presumably the, or arguably the intellectual capital of the world. I'm reading from, from verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, namely Silas and Timothy, at, at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. More literally, the city was under idols. The city is like buried in idols. So the the, the city of Athens, the people of Athens had this this sense of pride, of open-mindedness to the different religions of the world and the different idols. And they're open to all the ideas and philosophies and took great pride in debating and discussing them. Uh, and, and all over the city of Athens were different places of worship, temples and shrines and altars, uh, many objects of worship, statues and idols and images, uh, some, many crafted, you know, finely crafted out of uh, uh, stone and brass and even gold, silver, ivory, marble. Beautiful images of the gods, the idols. Athena, Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Neptune, Diana. One scholar reported that mathematically you were three times more likely to meet an idol on the street than a person. 30,000 idols, 10,000 people. And let me remind you now so Paul's perceiving this. The city's full of idols. Idolatry is false worship. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Idolatry is foolish worship. Various places you can go in the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, let me name one. Isaiah 44, which describes... Look an idol maker goes and he cuts down a tree and he divides it into two parts. Now reading from Isaiah forty four sixteen, 16, half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat and he roasts it and he is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. So he does with one half of it. He cooks and warms himself with it. Verse 17, and the rest, he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and he worships it and he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. It's foolishness. Idolatry is false worship. It's foolishness and it's damnable. Worship, glory, value, trust, allegiance, love toward any false God is damnable before the true and living God. God in his holiness and his commitment to his righteousness and goodness judges idolatry with condemnation, eternal punishment. So, Paul walks in and he sees this idolatry for what it is. I'll say more about that in a minute. But let me add to that, number two, Paul's passion. Seeing the idols for what they are, he has this strong emotional reaction in him. Verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. Sudden, uncontrollable expression of emotion. You could turn to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 in the Greek Septuagint uses this this same word that's translated the spirit was provoked within him. He uses it three times to give you this picture of God's reaction to the idolatry of the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Remember, they came out of Egypt they're in the wilderness and they have this moment of utter unbelief when they take the gold that they had carted out of Egypt with them and they melted it down and they made a golden calf and they worshipped Well, what was God's reaction to that? Let's look at that to get an insight into in Paul's reaction of seeing the idol's in Athens. Deuteronomy 32:18 They, as God's people, stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. And speaking directly to God's people, "You, God's people, were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them and God said, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. God is angry at idolatry. He's jealous when he he, he, he confronts idolatry. Why? Because a people that ought to worship him is wrongly worshiping something and someone else. The word jealousy is fitting. A husband who discovers his wife loving someone else being with jealousy, strong emotion, it's fitting. It's a fitting response to what is horribly wrong. All the more, God feels this anger at idolatry, and Paul feels it as well. I'm calling it a passion for God's glory. He sees God's glory being spurned, and he's "Uh, it ought not to be. You know, and right there, I thought, do I see it? Do I see the idolatry? I mean, it's like we're walking around Athens every day. Do I see it? Number one. Number two, do I feel it? Do I feel it? As a horrible offense against God. I mean, the, the, the illustrations are innumerable. I'll throw a few at you. Add to this. I mean, I always think about this on this Sunday before Thanksgiving when many of our family gatherings have NFL football somewhere in them. And, and inevitably, the post-game interview has the winning player saying, oh, I just believe in myself. Or we just believe in ourselves? Idolatry. Or the unrelenting... Presentation of advertising promises of what money or things can do for us bring us satisfaction and meaning and comfort and joy. Idolatry. Or the tendency to be enslaved with the approval of other people eclipsing the approval of God. Which social media has exploited for money. I just found out that Facebook makes almost $50 on every person who is online by your clicks, by, your, by, by having your mind. $50 a person. Or innumerable expressions of self-exaltation, self-definition, self-governing. I govern myself self-pleasing, self-determination. I am my own person. I am nobody. I mean, the illustrations of idolatry are everywhere. It is like we walk around Athens in our lives, our day-to-day lives, and my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is it like Paul, I would see it, not become accustomed to it, but feel this, <clears throat> this, that is not right. That is an offense against God. God's angry at that. I ought to. Point number three, Paul's engagement. What well, you would think that that, <clears throat> that that strong emotion might call Paul to just, you know, kind of throw down his his parchments and and say to Hades with you. But he doesn't. It's not what he does. No, a passion for the glory of God and the love of Christ compels him toward these people. He engages these people, and he's like a man on a mission. You know, I, I love just the assortment of the description of who he's talking to here in Acts 17. You know, on the Sabbath he goes to the synagogue, and then it says every day he's in the marketplace, and he's speaking persuasively. And so you can say he's. You know, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, right? The nations. But then he always starts with the Jews going to the synagogue. So he's going to bring the gospel to the, to the Jewish people and then to non-Jewish people who have converted to Judaism. They'd be at the synagogue. And then, then to everyone in the marketplace on the street corner. And then, a subset of everyone, he gets to talk to the philosophers. You know, okay, <laughs> I, just, I just like how open he is. Uh, yeah, I'm going to talk to them. So here, here it is, verse 19. Um, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took those as two different divinities. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So the Epicureans believed that God was remote and unengaged with the world. Everything was up to chance. A simple life of personal pleasure was the good life. And the Stoics believed that God was not personal because everything was God. The good life was a life of apathy and detachment, endurance of pain, and resignation to destiny. So he's got these Epicureans and Stoics, and, and he's going to talk to them. And I think as, as a downtown congregation, we worship here on this little block downtown, We have so many opportunities to interface with so many different kinds of people. It's incredible. Let me give you a list. I I was encouraged that the the little prayer meeting that gathered here Friday night saw some people gathered to mourn the death of a man was murdered out on 7th Street on Wednesday night. And the, 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 the little band of, of prayers here in the building Friday night, uh, someone mentioned there are people out there mourning on the street. Let's, let's go talk to them. Let's go pray with them. I, I love it. The group of mourners was gone when they got there is my understanding, but I love the impulse. Let's pray with these friends and family members of this man, Randall Smith, who was literally murdered on 7th Street right outside our building. How about, we, in, we get to interface with the poor. There was a man sleeping on the sidewalk when I came in a couple of weeks ago. Again, right back here, he could not be awakened We get to interface with the poor, the homeless, the growing population of people who claim that they're nuns, you know, they have no religion. We've been talking about that a little bit lately. Atheists. We get to talk to the de church people who have had a bad experience with church and therefore have maybe believe in God, but they have no interest in the church anymore. College students. What is it, Forty or 50,000 at the University of Minnesota plus all the other colleges? College professors, university professors, sports fans. I don't see any purple or green here today, but it's that day when the Vikings play the Packers. Sports figures. We've had coaches here in our services. Broken families, GLBT community, the business community, politicians, people in the arts, people giving their lives to all the full range of, of issues that can polarize, or have po- ha- that, that has polarized our country, race and politics and environmentalism. And we get to interface with all kinds of people as a downtown church. And, and this text says to me, don't engage merely with people you agree with. You will be no evangelist at all. But rather engage in human beings created in the image of God, whom God created to worship him and give him glory. Let's, let's go after them. Let's speak. Which brings me to point four Paul's preaching. This is an amazing sermon here and I am pretty sure I won't do it justice in, in walking through it. It's, it's amazing. So these philosophical leaders and gatekeepers invite Paul to the Areopagus and Paul goes and he begins his message with this respectful introduction. Verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I've also, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then Paul proceeded to preach the gospel to them in a manner unique to all the other sermons in the New Testament. I mean, I mean Peter... In, in Acts 2, was preaching to Jews. They understood the history of Israel, and that's where he started. But Paul here, he doesn't start with the history of Israel at all. It strikes me what he, what he does is, is theology followed by anthropology, followed by eschatology. He, it's very doctrinal. He starts with the doctrine of God And then the doctrine of man. And then the doctrine of the last things. So it's very interesting. Let's walk through it. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Let me stop there. He starts with God is. He made the world and everything in it. He is the creator and and the sovereign king. He made the world and therefore he rules the world. It's his. Verse 25. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. This creator, sovereign God, is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He's never lacking. He's never hungry. Psalm 50, 12 says even if he was hungry he wouldn't go to you to get anything because he'd get it from himself he doesn't need human beings he doesn't need us to serve him he doesn't need our money he doesn't need our fellowship in fact he is so full in fellowship with, in the Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit that he loves us at all comes from his fullness not need As such, he is way too massive, way too godlike to be contained in a little puny earthly temple or a little carved idol that you made. It's insulting. And yet, God in his bigness and his self sufficiency. Is not aloof. He continues each moment to sustain our lives every day, giving us life and breadth and everything else. In verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. So not only does God give us life and breadth and everything else in His sovereignty, He sets the time of your life born, death and He sets the place of your life where you're going to be during your life. (laughs) He sets the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then, I see mercy in the description of God's providence in verse 27. God sets the times and the places where you and I live in order that, verse 27, we should seek God and perhaps feel their way to, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, he is actually not far from us. So, in his giving us life, in his sovereignly ordaining our days, he does so in order that we should seek God and find him. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your poets, some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Get the point? Since God created everything, and sustains everything, everyone, and reigns over the world. It's totally nonsense to think that God is something formed by a craftsman out of wood or stone or gold or silver or anything else. It's nonsense. No? We are God's offspring by creation. And since we are God's children by creation, it's absurd to think of him as a piece of wood. That's what Paul's saying. It's crazy. Verse 30. Now he presses in. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's the eschatology. This is the climax of of Paul's sermon here. He soberly warns them about four things of the coming judgment. Number one, God will universally judge the world for such ignorance toward God. Number two, God will judge rightly. He will judge the world with justice. Number three, he will judge on a day. There's an appointed time when, when the court date has been set. And in all the world, all people will stand before him on this day to be judged in justice and righteousness. And number four, God has appointed a judge, a human judge, to judge on God's behalf. And this human judge lived and died and rose from the dead confirmation that he is God's chosen one for this text for this ta- task so then you think what does Paul do next the sermon ends verse 33 so Paul went out from their midst so i think he's got them on the hook of God's judgment idolaters falling short of the glory of God with an expectation of God's rightful judgment coming under this this man resurrected from the dead. That's where he leaves them. And we know he doesn't totally leave them there because verse 34 goes on to say, but some men joined him and believed and among whom were also Dionysus, uh, the Areopagite, uh, Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So simply, he, he, he went out from their midst, and I can imagine, people are coming up, tell, what shall we do? This, this judgment is on us. And these people joined him and believed because he spoke the gospel to them. what did he say? You know you know what I got to thinking? I thought, you know, I wonder, I, He spoke the gospel to them. I mean, it, He spoke the, the story of uh, God sending Christ into the world to save his people from their sins, and the, the redemption that's offered to all by faith in Christ, all who believe the gift of salvation in Christ and reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. Well, how did Paul do it? You know, here what I thought. I'll tell you what I thought. I thought, what if, you know, Paul is traveling the world with Luke. Luke has been working on a book, the Gospel of Luke. And, you know, since he does all this investigative work, he's probably got that investigative work done when he was in, in Israel. And now that he's, He's all the way over in Europe in, in uh, Athens or on his way to Athens. He, he's got that homework done for the book of Luke. So I'm thinking, this is, this is totally conjecture. Paul's got Luke. Uh, Paul's got the gospel of Luke in his head or in his, in his uh, possession perhaps. And uh, when the, when the philosophers and the people who are troubled about the judgment of God say, what shall we do? This We're going to stand before this resurrected man and be judged. Paul said something along the lines of Luke 2. He said, you know... This man, this resurrected man who will judge the world, he's the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And a while back, he took on human flesh to be born of a virgin. And he lived, and he suffered, and he died for this forgiveness. Of sinners like you and me, who have so offended God in our idolatrous ways. And you know, you know how His coming was announced to the shepherds and to all the world at his birth. You know how it was announced? Fear not. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What news do they need to hear? Hanging under the judgment of God? They need to hear A Savior has been born for you. Others, uh, Dionysus believes, uh, Damaris believes, and others with him believe. And uh, I hope and pray that if you don't know Jesus today, you believe. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word thanks so much for your saving grace to us in Christ. Grant that we would burn with a passion for your glory. And that that sense of your glory, that sense of worship and adoration would overflow in us, not with condemnation to the world, but would mobilize us to engage all kinds of people with the news of a savior born for us so father i pray as we as we close today and go celebrate the 150th anniversary you'll be with us be glorified and honored and strengthen our faith and then as we walk into advent i pray for a a, a renewing of our of our passion for you Grant that we would love and adore you in in new and deeper and fresh ways as we walk through the four weeks of Advent together, celebrating the news of Christ our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading the passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples.